All right, good morning. It is good to see everyone, and if you've got your Bible, tap or turn to Revelation 1. Revelation 1 is the next to the last book in the Bible. Uh, Maps is your last book. Um, that's a joke. Um, Revelation 1, and for those of us who were not here last week, we did an introduction last week, and I'll hit on a, a few of the things that we talked about last week very quickly, uh, but we'll spend most of our time moving on from that introductory first three verses in the bulk of the chapter. There are a lot of different directions that you could take a study of Revelation 1, uh, and what I thought we would do today is ask and answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Because I believe in Revelation 1, we see one of the clearest, if not the clearest picture of who Jesus Christ is in the Bible, certainly collectively in one passage. In fact, John Walvoord, who is a former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, in speaking of just the first eight verses of Revelation, says this, If no more had been written than that contained in this introductory portion of chapter 1, it would have constituted a tremendous restatement of the person and work of Christ, such as found in no comparable section of Scripture. And that was just speaking of the first eight verses. So I think what we see in chapter 1 is a very clear picture of who Jesus Christ is. So we're going to ask and answer that today. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is God. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is eternal. We're going to see that Jesus is our identity, that He is head of the church, that He is the righteous judge, that He is the Son of Man, and that Jesus is our comfort. And because Jesus is all those things, it should impact, should and could impact the way that we live our lives. And in fact, Austin has already taught the application for this, so if you weren't 100% sure, go back and re-listen to Austin's message that he just preached in the first service, uh, because there's a great deal of what is in Second Peter that's applicable to um, the changes in the way that we should live our lives in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week. What is an apocalypse? Hint, it is not, and doesn't have anything to do with zombies, doesn't have anything to do with explosions or with meteors. Ian has his hand up. Ian, what is an apocalypse? It's a revelation. Actually, if you're reading the slides, it's up there. It's an uncovering. It's an unveiling. It's removing the veil. Uh, in terms of the Scripture, it is uh, the... Uh, this is where notes are handy. It is the disclosure of a truth previously unknown. And that Greek word for revelation is apocalypso. And that's where we get our word apocalypse. So it's nothing scary. It's nothing, uh, you know, like, again, zombie-related. But it simply means an unveiling or an uncovering. And that is what this book is. It is the uncovering, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. God gave this message, and we see this in the first three verses. God gave this message, this uncovering, to Jesus, who then gave it to an angel to communicate with John so that John could write it down and that we would have the book that we have today, which is the book of Revelation. That's how this message came down. It is a message about the things that are to come, and it was written, as it tells us, to his servants. Who are the servants of Christ? <laughs> Just yell it out when you know. We are. John was a bondservant. Anyone who is a believer in Christ is a servant of Christ. It simply means those of us who have submitted our wills to His will. That is a bondservant. We see in verse 2 that John is giving us the word that he got from Christ, and it is a complete and accurate record of what Christ told him and what he saw, the testimony. 
And in verse 3, it closes with a beatitude, a blessing. Who is it that is blessed by revelation? Believers? It tells us specifically in verse 3, right? Who are, who are the ones who are blessed by this book? It's open book. You can read it and look and answer. The person who reads it and who? And the person who obeys it. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed is he who hears and keeps or obeys this prophecy. So that doesn't mean that just by virtue of me saying it out loud that I get it, or that just by sitting here and having the words come into your ears and then your brain processes it, you actually have to think on and apply these things in order to receive the blessing, which doesn't mean that your bank account gets filled up at 12 o'clock today when we're done. It means you'll just simply have happiness and contentment. That is the blessing. It's a happiness. It is a contentment. So, we will be happy when we read and study and obey what is taught here. And that is the beginning. That is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, to start... I'm going to read, and we're just going to read chapter 1 today because a blessing is promised when we read and hear this. That's the first steps here, right? So let's do it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, who is Jesus Christ? The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is part of the Trinity. And I hesitate to even say that he is part of it 
I was trying to think of a synonym as he's a part or he's a portion or he's a, and all of those don't really do that justice. Uh, he is, they are all intertwined and intermeshed as part of the three in one God. But Jesus is one of those three. Verse 4 begins uh, what is typical of a letter in those days with a greeting, grace and peace to you uh, from the giver of the message. And that grace and peace is coming from the Trinity, is coming from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And that is, you know, only true, gra or true grace and peace can only come from God. It's not something that we can conjure up on our own. First, we see in the Trinity part here is that we have God the Father. In verse 4, um, it says, From Him who is and who was and who is to come. And that is God the Father, the Eternal One, uncreated. In the beginning was God. This is God the Father. He has always been and He always will be. But then next, it becomes a little more confusing. Next, we see the seven spirits before his throne. Well, if that's the Holy Spirit, how do we get there? How do we get that that's the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing I'll say, and this is we can talk generally speaking, that we'll see a lot uh, in Revelation, is the number seven. The number seven carries significance because seven is a number of completeness or fullness. So what we are seeing here is the fullness or the completeness of spirit before the throne. Commentator John Phillips says that approximately half of the symbols that we're going to see in Revelation, and remember we talked last week that we are going to interpret these literally unless there is a reason contextually for us not to interpret what we're seeing and reading literally. That's the way to approach all of the scripture, not just Revelation. But, having said that, there is a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. And commentator John Phillips says about half of that, about half of those symbols, we will actually have explained to us in the text. So what do we do with the other half? Well, with the other half, we need to go to the rest of the Bible to see if that will give us a clue as to what this is symbolizing. We're going to see an example uh, in chapter 1 and actually verse 20 is a situation where it, ex it explains a symbol that was given earlier in the chapter. But what about with these seven spirits? Because we're not told what they are. Um, so with these thoughts in mind and with Old Testament support, I'm going to read from Isaiah 11:2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, if I can turn my page, the spirit of knowledge and spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven aspects of the ministry of the Spirit that we see in Isaiah 11, 2. The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Many commentators believe that this seven spirits before the throne is a reference to that sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can also see this in Zechariah 4 and verses 2 through 6. In Zechariah's writings, he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by my might nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So this picture, these seven lamps, as it was explained right there by this angel, is a picture of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. And what's pictured in Zechariah is this lampstand with seven bowls beside two olive trees. And these olive trees are producing the oil that is keeping the, this lamp, these seven lamps, continually lit. And that is, an, that is a picture of the Holy Spirit, which is always active, always a lamp that the light never goes out of. 
Those two Old Testament references help us to see that this is seven spirits before the throne, that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some that would argue that this is not the Holy Spirit, but rather uh, perhaps angels. One problem with looking at that is in the context. So in this greeting, we have God the Father, who was, who is, and who is to come, then these seven spirits, and then, what does it say? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So in between the Father and the Son, would it make sense for there just to be a group of angels? If he, he's speaking of this grace and peace from this message from God, from the Trinity, contextually, it simply makes sense that this is the Holy Spirit and that God in his wisdom chose to give us this picture of the seven spirits before the throne as the Holy Spirit. Um, the Old Testament references that we, we looked at offer great support that this is, in fact, God the Spirit. So we have God the Father, who was, who is, who is to come, the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne, and then clearly we see, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is God the Son. It says he is the faithful witness. What does a witness do? A witness testifies, right? And if they're a good witness, we would expect that they're giving truthful testimony. He is the faithful witness. Christ is both acceptable and able to testify about the things that are to come. Remember, this is a book about the things that are to come, primarily. It says that he is the firstborn of the dead. And so, well, wait a minute. Christ was born, Christ was created. No, this is not telling us that Christ is a created being. This word for firstborn actually is preeminent. And what this is telling us is not that Christ was a created being, is that he was the greatest of those who have been raised from the dead. He is the first that was raised from the dead. He is the greatest that was raised from the dead. The Greek word actually connotates supreme authority. And if you think back in the society and the times that the Bible was written, being the firstborn carried extraordinary significance. Uh, the firstborn son had greater rights as an heir uh, than the other children that would follow. Uh, and Christ is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn. He died. He was the first to, to raise to eternal life. Next, we see Christ described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is sovereign over nations. In Daniel, it says that he sets up kings and he deposes them or he removes them. No ruler is currently ruling on the planet. No political leader, no king is ruling without Christ having allowed him to be there. Jesus is currently using evil men in places of authority on this earth to work for his purposes. And one day he is going to return to earth and he is going to reign forever. He will be removing them from their places. We see a great picture of this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus isn't just going to rule over the nations when he returns, when he comes again. Jesus is ruling over the nations now. He is ruling now. He will rule for eternity. 
So in this picture, in these first two verses, four and five, we see Jesus is God. He is part of that eternal Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. The next thing we see in the passage is that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. These verses describe Jesus as our Savior. He knows each one of us personally. He has numbered our days. He knows the number of hairs on our head, or for some of us, the lack of hair on our head. He knows all of these things about us. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And it begins by saying that he loves us. Who has a translation that says something different than loves? Anyone? No, some translations render that in the past tense, loved. And I think either of those give us a really beautiful picture about the love of Christ. Um, Greater love has no man than this, than he would give up his life for his friends. This is that agape, agapio, that unconditional love that is speaking here. Uh, Commentator David Guzik says that looking at it in the past tense, that he loved us, points us back to the cross. It points us back to his death, that he died on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sins. So in thinking of how he loved us by going to the cross for us is a great demonstration of that love. But the word actually is, is an ongoing idea. It's not just that he loved us or that he loves us in this moment. It's that he always loves us. It is never ending, never ceasing. Um, Romans 8, 38 and 39 talks about this, that there is nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from his love. There was nothing that we could do to earn his love. None of us uh, are worthy of being loved by Christ and his perfection. He loves us of his own volition. He is our Savior. The next it says, excuse me, that he freed us from our sins by his blood. The prophet Isaiah said that by his wounds we are healed. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. That's Hebrews 9.22. And in 1 John 1.7 it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This idea of being freed is the idea of a prisoner being set free, of of the cuffs, the shackles, the chains being taken off of them. And that is what Jesus frees us from. He frees us from the shackles of sin. He takes them off. He does away with them. And he did that by the cross, by his blood. 1 Peter 1 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, those are those shackles, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you are not your own. You were bought bought and paid with a price. He freed us from our sins. He purchased us with his blood. He purchased us individually. That wasn't collectively. He purchased us individually. If you are a believer on him, he is your savior. It says he made us to be a kingdom. And thinking of that in, in two ways, number one, a kingdom, think of it as we are all part of a holy nation, his holy nation, the kingdom of God. And it tells us, and we'll see if we can get through this later on, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now, when we're in Revelation, you know, 18, 19, 20. That's a joke. We will rule with him. We will reign with him. When he comes to set up his kingdom, we will reign with him. We are part of his kingdom collectively. And then he said it that we are priests. He made us priests to his God. 
What was significant and what was different about the priests in the Old Testament, different from just, you know, regular old Israelites? They got to go into the holy place. Exactly. The priest, just anybody couldn't go into the inner parts of the temple. And only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, which was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he could only do that once a year. So the priests were God's representatives for the people. They went, they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, and they were, God spoke through the priests and, and to, or the priests asked for forgiveness on behalf of the Israelites. Just anybody couldn't go offer the sacrifice. It had to be done by a priest. There were very strict rules about that. But now, in the New Covenant, that has changed. He has made us priests. We all have access to God, individually, personally. We don't need an intermediary. Jesus has made that possible for us. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. We are all priests. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a priest, a royal priest. You don't need anyone to go to God on your behalf. You can go directly to Christ. And it says he's coming back. He is coming back. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. He left with the clouds in Acts as, we, as he rose, and he is coming back with the clouds. That's how he's going to come back. And it says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. People, when he returns, will see him for who he is. They will see the reality that is Jesus Christ. And not just some people, all people will see him. It will be a public spectacle like there has never been a public spectacle before beyond anything I think that I could imagine. All will see him, not just believers, even those who have rejected him. John MacArthur notes that the wailing is going to be because of the guilt and the fear and the punishment to come. But we can see a great picture of this going back uh, in other parts of Scripture. In the book of Zechariah, in chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. On that day, the Jews, the nation of Israel, is going to realize that they crucified their Savior. They crucified Christ. They didn't know it 2,000 years ago. They are going to know it when he returns. But it's not just the tribes of Israel that are going to wail and mourn. Listen to Matthew 24, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Everyone is going to see him when he returns. He is either going to be returning as the righteous judge, but if we will place our trust and our faith in him, he is coming back as our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Man, i got to go fast. Next, we're going to see that Jesus is both eternal and that Jesus is our identity. Reading in verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What are Alpha and Omega? The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. What's quite interesting is, is in the text, Alpha is spelled out, but only the letter Omega is used. One commentator said that that is because what is past has already been revealed and written, but what is in the future has not yet come to be. Could be. It's quite interesting, though, that, uh, that it would be written that way. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8 that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has always existed. John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is, he was, he is to come. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus was with God the Father from the beginning. He is uncreated. He was not born in a manger 2,000 years ago. He was there before time existed. He is holding all things together. He has always held all things together. He is eternal. It says that He is the Almighty, the controller of all things, all-powerful, sovereign, uncreated, eternal. But not only is Jesus eternal, He is also our identity, our identity. Look at verse 9, and this is John speaking of himself as he is, again, it's kind of his beginning of the introduction of his vision. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John presents himself as, a, as, a, as the author of this letter, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but there's a couple of things I do want to point out. He says that he was in the Spirit and that it was on the Lord's day. What in the heck is he talking about? Well, what in the Spirit is, is essentially he was taken to the future, to another place. Potentially, you could see that in, as a, into a spiritual dimension to be able to see things that were going to happen in the future. This was not a dream, okay? A dream is something, I mean, who, who has had a dream in the last week? Probably all of us. May you remember it, maybe you don't. This was, the, and what the way that it's indicated in the text is that this was an event that was extraordinarily unusual. And I don't think somebody having a dream would really be considered unusual, even if it was, because who's ever had an unusual dream? We probably all had an unusual dream. This was something different. And then he said it was on the Lord's day. And there's no consistent agreement that I found here. Some scholars say that the Lord's day was simply Sunday. Sunday was the Lord's day. The problem with that, and I don't want to say a problem, the challenge with that is that most of the time, at least in the New Testament, when it talked about Sunday, uh, it was just the first day of the week. That wasn't really called in the New Testament the Lord's day. We sometimes call it that day, that now. But then there is another group that believes that this is referring to the day of the Lord which is a picture of what we see later on in Revelation, his return in judgment. And the challenge with that is that when that is mentioned in the Scriptures, it's not usually mentioned as the Lord's day. It's mentioned as the day of the Lord. So this is written differently than either one of the two, what we think are the two best possibilities that he's talking about. Uh, I tend to lean towards this as being him seeing a picture of the day of the Lord as opposed to it just being a Sunday, uh, but I can't be dogmatic about that. But what I will say is that neither of those views takes away from the truth that God is John, God will reveal through John in this letter. The fact that whether it was on a Sunday or not, or whether clearly we are going to see a vision of the day of the Lord, whether that's exactly what John was talking about here, we can't know with any certainty. But what we can know with certainty is that John closely identified himself with Christ. Christ was his identity. How did John refer to himself in his gospel? Anybody know? Did he say, I, John the Apostle? Is that how he constantly referred to himself in his, apostle, in his gospel? He was the one who Jesus loved. He was the one who Jesus loved. And we see that here. Everything he's talking about he sees through Christ. He sees Christ as being a part of everything. He said, John, your brother. He's not writing to family members. He's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He sees himself as a member of Christ's family. And he says he's a partaker in the, <clears throat> excuse me, the tribulation. And we, we talk about this actually extensively Wednesday night in our uh, book study. This tribulation is a pressure. It is a, an external pressure that's causing inward strife. And that's what is promised for believers. And he was experiencing that. In fact, he had been sent 
to Patmos. He said he's writing from Patmos, this prison island, because he was being persecuted, because he had been sent there, because he was doing Christ's work. Everything about John that he is recording and writing, he sees himself through Christ, in Christ, the disciple whom Jesus loved, your brother in Christ, your partner in Christ, the kingdom of God, the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You know, he says, I'm in Patmos, I'm on Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Everything here we see, John can't see himself apart from Christ. Can we say that about ourselves? We'll hold that for the end. He sees himself as identifies himself with Christ. Christ is our identity. Next, we see Jesus is head of the church. And he, he writes out, and he's, he, he was given the instruction to write this letter to these seven churches. Uh, we'll talk about them extensively over the next few weeks. Uh, I'll just say today that these were seven real churches that existed in the first century. And they had seven unique situations going on in them. Uh, again, that we'll talk about in greater detail in the weeks to come. And he says, in the midst of these lampstands, that he, he's, he heard this voice, he saw seven lampstands, and in the midst of these lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And then he goes on to say, in his right hand he held seven stars. And then as I mentioned earlier, if you skip ahead to verse 20, we get this explained, because without it, we would be left to try to, again, figure out from some way earlier in Scripture, what in the heck is he talking about? Well, in this case, we don't have to wonder, because he tells us, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So again, seven real churches. So what about these angels? What are these angels of the seven churches? And that Greek word for angels simply means messenger. And it's often used in the New Testament to speak of angels, like we think about angels. Uh, but it could also mean simply a reference to uh, uh, someone who is giving a message. Um, and a lot of commentators believe that this is a reference to an elder or the pastor of these seven churches. That's kind of the way that I lean, uh, but we can't know with 100% with certainty exactly what it's talking about. It, it could mean that each of these churches have a, an assigned angel um, to, you know, to some degree who is watching over them. Uh, but that is who these are. But in that, we see these lampstands are the churches. Jesus is walking amongst these churches, and he is holding their leaders or their overseers in his hand. And we can clearly see in that that Christ is head of the church. He is head of the church, but we don't just have to guess it because his word tells us that. In Matthew 16, he's speaking to Peter, and Peter tells him, you know, that uh, we say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and that the rock that he is building his church on is not Peter. The rock that he's building his church on is the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is Christ. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is his church. Ephesians 5.23 says, The husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. Colossians 1.18, speaking of Jesus, says, He is also head of the body, the church. We see Christ, the head of the church, walking amongst his churches, walking among these seven churches. And again, there's going to be significance in that seven. This is, and well, that's next week. Don't have time today. He holds the leaders in his right hand, and this right hand was a place of power and safety. If you recall, you know, the apostles argued all the time, am I going to sit at your right hand? Am I going to be your, you know, your right-hand man? 
uh, that was a significant place, and so there is great significance that he is holding them in his right hand. He is head of the church. Going back into verses 13 through 16, we see that he is the righteous judge. He is the righteous judge. Turn in your Bibles or tap in your Bibles. We're going to speed ahead here to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. So we see here Jesus is the righteous judge. We're also going to see that he is the son of man. And if you get to Ezekiel, keep going. You're almost to Daniel. And Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has a vision. And we see in this, and I'm looking in uh, in verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And this, so I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. He goes on to say, I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. What did John see? One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Who did Daniel see? Jesus. Who did John see? Jesus. Do you think they saw the same person? Look at the comparisons. It, you can't ignore it. I've actually broke them down on this slide. There, it's exactly what you would think about if you were getting eyewitness testimony from two different people. It wouldn't be exactly the same, because if it was exactly the same, what would you think? Yeah, they met together beforehand and they rehearsed it. But they saw the same man. Daniel, around 530 B.C., John, around 95 A.D. So over 600 years passed, Jesus was the same, He is the same, He will always be the same. They saw the glorified Christ. And we even saw it in... uh, I'm really messing up now because this is going off script. But Austin made reference in the transfiguration. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. They got a picture of the same thing. This is the glorified Christ. He is the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man throughout the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark. But he is also the righteous judge. Because while this is an indication of what he saw, it also speaks to the character of Christ. And just going quickly quickly through these things, this idea of a man in a robe takes us back to the priesthood, the robes that the priest wore. Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Across his chest was a golden sash. Daniel saw that too. Gold signifies righteousness, perfection, purity. What about hair white like wool? What does white represent? Wisdom, yeah, that's a, that's a proverb, which, case in point, proverbs are not facts, they're just general principles, because just because you have white hair doesn't mean you have wisdom. It also demonstrates purity and holiness, and I think all of those are characteristics of Christ. It says that he had eyes like flame of fire. What do you think of when you think about fire in biblical terms? judgment judgment we see this picture his eyes 
His eyes are burning judgment, inspecting and exploring in perfect righteousness. Charles Ryrie said, eyes of fire are his penetrating judgment. He said he had feet like burnished bronze or like polished bronze. Again, this is a picture of judgment because what was made of burnished bronze? Can you think back in the Old Testament? Anybody, anybody? Go for it. They, well, they may have made idols of burnished bronze, something good. This wasn't something bad. The, the brazen altar, the altar where they offered the sacrifices for sin was made of burnished bronze. So we see here a picture of that, again, judgment. It said he had a voice like the sound of many waters. And going back to Matthew 17, we saw the same idea, this voice. There was significance when God spoke verbally. Um, in Matthew 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So as I think, because we see that's what happened to Daniel, right? He's like, I fell on my face like I was dead when I saw this. We're, we see John had the same reaction. The, the James, John, and Peter had that reaction when they saw the transfigured Christ and heard the voice of God. And I, it's a voice I'm thinking is loud enough that it was in as much as the voice as it was the vision that caused them to fear. That's just my opinion, just a thought. Um, but it is powerful. The voice of God is powerful. It said, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. What do you think this represents? Come on, some of you were doing VBS a few weeks ago. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, right? We see that in Hebrews 4, where it talks about the Word of God as a two-edged sword. We see it in Ephesians 6, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And again, it's a picture of judgment, because it is by His Word that Christ is going to judge the world. Charles Ryrie said, the two edges of God's Word are life and death. The Word of God is the basis for all judgment. And then lastly, his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Can we look into the sun without any eye protection? Not, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's momentarily at least blinding. We can't look at and we cannot look directly at Christ. It's a picture of the magnificent glory of God. John is saying, basically, what I saw caused me to faint. The beautiful picture that we see there is that Jesus doesn't leave us there. Because not only is he the son of man and a righteous judge, but he is also our comfort. Because what was the response to Daniel? What was the response to the three apostles at the transfiguration? What was the response to John? It's open book. It's on the screen. Fear not. Fear not. What's that? Yeah, he puts his hand on him and says, Do not fear. Fear not. The comfort of Christ. The comfort of Christ. Get to this spot in our notes. He had been overwhelmed with fear. You know, in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to die. This is it. I'm done. It's over. And there's the hand of Christ. Do not fear. And then he tells him, here's why you don't need to fear. He's telling us, here is why we don't need to fear. He is the first and the last. Again, he is eternal. He is God. There has never been anyone before him, and there will never be anyone after him. He's always existed. So he is the living one. He died, he defeated death, and he rose again, and he will live forever. Because Jesus defeated death, we don't have to fear death. If we belong to him, we will be raised with him. He is the resurrected Christ. It says he holds the keys of death and Hades. Satan doesn't control hell. 
Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything. Jesus is the determiner of who dies, when they die, and whether or not they belong to him. Jesus and only Jesus is the determiner of that. He holds all power over death and judgment, life and eternity. He has numbered our days and is in complete control of everything, including our lives. Because Jesus is the Savior and because He is King, because He's holy and because He loves us, we should fear not. He is our comfort. There is no reason to fear. That truth, those truths, should be of great comfort to us. So what? So what do we do with all of this? What does this mean for us? Jesus is our God. He is Savior, eternal identity, head of the church, the righteous one, the son of man, and our comfort. This should and could change everything about us. Will it? Does it? And I'm going to offer to you this passage from 2 Peter 3. And this will be, this is a great application passage for the entire book of Revelation. So we'll probably be coming back and back and back to 2 Peter 10, 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 14. And I'll close by reading it. And then we've got some, some questions at the tables that I'd like for you to discuss for some application, how we apply this to our lives. Let this passage in 2 Peter be a guide for how you apply these truths. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Jesus is God. That is who Jesus is. So take the remaining minutes, talk through those questions at your tables. And we'll see you next week.